Thanks for tuning into the Refuge Church Sermon Podcast. It's our prayer that the Spirit would use God's Word to stir your affections for Christ during this time. While we're glad to provide this online content, please remember that it's not intended to replace commitment and connection within a local church family. Now, here's this week's message. Scripture this morning is going to be from Deuteronomy 5, verses 1 through 6. And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and the rules that I speak in your hearing today, and you shall learn them and be careful to do them. The Lord our God made a covenant with us in Horeb. Not with our fathers did the Lord make this covenant, but with us, who are all of us here alive today. The Lord spoke with you face to face at the mountain, out of the midst of the fire, while I stood between the Lord and you at that time, to declare to you the word of the Lord. For you were afraid because of the fire, and you did not go up into the mountain. He said, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. The grass withereth and the flower fadeth. The word of the Lord endures forever. And we have EGC, Elevate, first and second grade. You are going with the Nevilles, plural. So go find Jeremy, the big bearded guy. Uh, You can go out that way. And then people going uh, to EGC. Go out the other side. Okay, everybody's there. And hopefully this works. Sorry, you're all having to, I'm going to suck in my gut. Okay. All right. I am glad that you are here this morning. I also forgot my glasses. Um, So if I, I may have to ask somebody to hold it out there. Uh, But uh, we'll get after this. We're going to continue on this morning in uh, the book of Deuteronomy. I'm I'm not even going to open my Bible because that print is way too small. Uh, We're going to continue on our sermon series uh, throughout the autumn uh, in the book of Deuteronomy um, this morning. And chapter 5 in Deuteronomy is the second go-round of Moses giving uh, the people of God the Ten Commandments. Uh, And I want to start with a story. I've told this story before, referred to this before, uh, but um, I think it's critically important in, in 1998, uh, an author by the name of Barbara Kingsolver re- released a novel, uh, and it was, the novel was told from five different perspectives of women, a, a wife and four daughters. And it's the story of an American missionary family that, uh, led by their patriarch, Nathan Price, who had served in the military and was driven by this vision that he, he, he claimed to be uh, from God to see as many people saved as he saw perish in war. And so Nathan packed up his wife and four children, and even the way that they got there was a bit suspect, and they left Georgia and went to uh, a, a small village in the Congo, uh, and this is in the late 1950s, in the middle of 
all kinds of social upheaval and political turmoil. And the family finds themselves in the middle of just absolute disarray. From the first worship service, they notice this is, we, they, they don't, they're, they're out of their league. They don't understand the culture that they're entering into. And the stories of the neglect of understanding the context and the culture that they're in just are, are all over the place. Um, Price tries to plan a big Easter service right off the bat where his hope is to baptize all of these Congolese people, but none of them want to be baptized, not because anything to do with Jesus, but because the river in which he wanted them to be baptized was infested with crocodiles that he did not know about. Um, when his youngest daughter gets sick, she lies sick in bed for weeks, and he refuses medical help or medical attention uh, and, and insists that they live by faith. One morning, the girls, the other sisters, go in to check the chicken coop. They saw footprints going into the chicken coop. And as they went there, they saw uh, a large green mamba snake at the foot of their youngest sister lying on the ground. And they watched helplessly as she turned blue and would succumb to the venom. The title of the book epitomizes Nathan Price's overzealous and cultural, overzealousness and his cultural arrogance and ignorance. He would conclude his sermons with the saying, Tata Jesus is Bangala, which what he meant to say is Jesus is precious, but because of his mispronunciation and his failure, to learn the language, what he ended all of his sermons with is, Jesus is poison wood. When we fail to understand context, when we fail to understand cultural norms, language barriers, how things are going, it, it can be bad and it can be dangerous. At, at its worst. But it can also it can deprive us of a depth of knowledge and understanding of what, of what could be, of something that is deep and beautiful. Now, as a confession, and I think this is kind of a confession of relief, I had always understood this novel to be historical, to be a, a, uh, uh, based on a true story. And it, it is, but it isn't. Um, it is all of the events of the, uh, taking place in the Congo were real, very, very real. But the author, uh, whose main issue was with, Ameri with Western imperialism, especially on African nations, uh, she makes up a fictitious family. Although, uh, when we can see some of the history of missionaries, this is not necessarily too far-fetched, but it was much to my relief to hear that this was not based on real events of this family. So, um, nevertheless, uh, her story is, is poignant. Um, and, and this is a reason why I want us to be vigorous in understanding the contexts in which the Bible was written. We have, we, we kind of have we're, we kind of are tempted to reductionistic type of approaches. Um, we, we will say things, which I believe. The Bible is inerrant. That is true. I believe that. I hold to that. But we also, what we need to understand is the Bible was written to a people 
in a specific place and time. And before we just open it up and say, what does this say to me right now? There are certain psalms that we can do that with. There are certain eternal truths that are in there. But, but really, what we, what we should do, and this is what we talk about when we study the Bible, we should open up and say, what's being made known to this people in this time? And what is happening with them? And what did they need to hear about God? So what we're going to start with is in, in Deuteronomy 5, as we lay down the foundation of the Ten Commandments, um, what is the main point that Moses is trying to make here? And what is being made known to this people in this context, in this time, particularly here in the Hebrew Scriptures? And then, and then, when we talk about the Hebrew Scriptures, then we bring Jesus to bear on that. What did Jesus fulfill? Um, and, uh, and then, now what do I need to hear? And how, how do I need to respond to this? So let's get, into the, let's get into the passage, Deuteronomy chapter 5. We're going to just start with verse 1 here to start off. Moses summoned all of Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and rules that I speak in your hearing today. Uh, you shall learn them and be careful to do them. To give just a brief <clears throat> picture of where we're at in, Israel, uh, in Israel's history. This is pretty important. It's a critical time. They've been delivered from Egypt. Uh, if you remember last week, we if you were here last week, we talked about the first four chapters of Deuteronomy are kind of all the adventures that happened when God rescued them out of Egypt. They refused to go in the promised land. And so God uh, gives them 40 years in the desert uh, as, as their reward. But what God does there is God provides and he establishes further and further his, the, the relationship with his people, proving he is God over and over again. And so here, on the precipice of entering in the promised land, uh, Moses calls all the people together again, and he says, Hear, O Israel. And anytime you see hear or listen, and this should be the same with us, it is a call to response. Take this in and respond. It's not just a matter of take this information in, right? If, if you have friends or, or children that they can take in information like, uh-huh, and then they turn back to do the exact thing that they were doing. This is not that, this is a call to hear and respond. And Moses has given this list once before, about 40 years prior, the Ten Commandments. This comes from God to Moses. Um, so now, as they're about to enter the promised land, they're going to learn more about this God who has provided for them, this God that they disobeyed, this God who rescued them. Uh, he's going to go through these again, and the correlating command is going to be hear, learn them, and do them. Now, there are a couple things in this verse right here that might give us a little bit of a, of a hiccup. All right, we hear, hear, O Israel, the statutes and the rules that I speak in your hearing today. Rules, right? You hear that word. Statutes is not something we use as much, but, but we hear rules. And I, we, maybe you have an allergic reaction to that. Well, Christianity is not about rules, right? It's not a religion about rules. Uh, but then a lot of times in practice, we kind of make Christianity about rules, about a certain level of do these things and don't do these things. We can be tempted to make it a religion about rules. 
we're going to be tempted to see this as, as a type of legislation. Don't break the rules or else. Um, we have often, we, we, even just with the Ten Commandments, we have a, we have a weird relationship with the Ten Commandments. Um, it's the foundation of, of all modern-day legislation, right? Anybody heard that? The foundation of modern-day law. Uh, the Hammurabi Code was actually an older system of laws that has a lot that's in it that's kind of the same thing, the same foundation. Um, and so we have this unique relationship of what, what is the role of the Ten Commandments in, like, in life and in general legislation. So we're going to be tempted to see that. Uh, we've heard it said, and I've probably even said, if you break just one of these commandments, you need forgiveness, right? You need Jesus. That, that's true, I think. And I, and I don't think any of us need to worry about just breaking one, um, right? We're pretty good on that. Uh, but yet, this is, n this is not necessarily what Moses is, is wanting to say here. It doesn't come across like Moses was wanting to say to the people, Hero Israel, here are Ten Commandments, and if you don't do them, you're going to need a Savior. This just doesn't, come, it doesn't seem to be the point. Now, that is eventually what will unfold. Um, but there's nothing in the Ten Commandments that you're going to see that really is about forgiveness or, or reconciliation. That will come, and that's in place. Um, people either love or hate the Ten Commandments, right? We're either like, that's just legalism, that's just type of legislation, we don't need them, or we need these outside of every courthouse in America. This is the foundation of all that we believe, and if we really want our country back, we need to get, right? Um, you'll be happy to know that Moses had, that, that wasn't even on his radar. Now, let me calm you down just a little bit. Again, we, our temptation is to get to a point where we just reduce things down to a flat line. Um, and I think when we do that, we miss a whole lot of depth and beauty, not the least of which is the character of the God who is giving these commands. What is he like? What is the motive for obedience? So this morning, we're going we're gonna to look at context in history. I'm not going to give you like a secret code of every fifth letter is going to reveal, you know, like drink more Ovaltine type of thing, but uh, learning historical context and what is really behind these commandments. And I think and I hope that this could be tremendously hopeful and helpful. So I want to start with, I, I always love theologians and I love uh, authors um, that give historical and cultural context to the ancient text. That we don't just look and read the Bible and simply look at the grammar and what does this verb modify? Do verbs modify? Or do add, what mod, so what mo something modifies another? I, this, the English, I don't, I don't, uh, I don't believe God reveals himself in that way. Can I say that? Anyway. Um, by, by diagramming a, a, a sentence. But when, we, when we're able to look at the history and the context, it may give us a, a much 
a, a more uh, unique understanding. I'm not going to say it just robs us of everything that we already know, but I think the depth and the richness can be something. Um, and uh, one of the guys that was very influential in today and in, in helping me understand a little bit more about the, the historical context is a guy named John Walton, uh, and I, his stuff has been amazing here. So let's go back to the, to the passage in uh, chapter 5, verse 2, and we'll take just a little bit deeper dive into what's going on. The Lord our God made a covenant with us in Horeb. Not with our fathers did he make this covenant, but with us, who are all of us, uh, all of us here alive today. Now, I'll, I'll, I'll explain it later. All right. The Lord spoke with you face to face at the mountain out of the midst of the fire where I, while I stood between the Lord and you at that time to declare to you the word of the Lord because you were afraid of the fire. You did not go up into the mountain. And the Lord said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Um, the word cosmology. Ology is what? The study of the cosmos. Cosmology, the study of the cosmos, how we explain the world around us. Um, the origins of the universe. All ancient people had a concept of divine, of gods. I would argue that that's something that's hardwired into us. I think I would argue from Scripture that's something hardwired into us. Um, we've talked before here about uh, the story of the Enuma Elish, and I'm not going to go all through it again, but uh, the story of the Enuma Elish, which is the Babylonian origin story of how the world came to be, where you have the god Marduk, not Marmaduke, which I messed up last time, not a giant dog, but the, do uh, the god Marduk, um, who rose up and avenged the younger gods, slaying the old man, get off my lawn, god Tiamat. Uh, and that is how the world began. Uh, if you've ever seen, if you've ever read uh, the uh, Odyssey or the Iliad, or uh, if you remember, some of us are old enough to remember in junior high when they showed Clash of the Titans, uh, edited in junior high, um, then this, this is not going to seem that foreign to you. You're going to go, okay, yeah, I, I can kind of understand what, uh, that, what's happening here. Um, all of the ancient peoples in their cosmology, there were multiple gods over multiple things, over multiple aspects of nature. Uh, there were gods over um, the, the, the stars and the moon and the seas and thunderstorms and rain and harvest and fertilization, which fertility gods were, were big on the chain because if you didn't have children and, and uh, if, your, if your flocks didn't have more flocks, then you were in trouble. And these gods were... Um, they were not beyond the cosmos. They were kind of within the earthly realm. They, they looked a lot like kings and rulers and authorities, but had a little bit, they had a little bit more power. Now, none of these gods actually revealed themselves. These were just stories told on, on, on narratives on how the world worked and how to appease these gods. And every origin story of these gods was... They created the world to enjoy. It was for them. They dwelt here. But then, like, they got tired of mowing the lawn. And they got tired of keeping up stuff. And so 
they needed something, a, some subjects that they could get to do the work. That's us. Humans. Let's create humans. They'll do our work. And then there became this weird relationship between humans and the gods where we tried to appease them. We needed their help. Um, we needed rain and all this kind of stuff for the harvest, but then they needed us to do the harvest. They were needy. But there was no, like, rules on how to please these gods and what they actually wanted. And so you could offer the entrails of some animal, but you didn't quite know if it was enough. And these gods were also at war with other gods, and there were power plays among them, and uh, all this stuff going on, all this manipulation. And your life, basically, when it came to religion, your life was trying to keep them happy so that you could kind of carry out your own life. They didn't have a concept of sin like we do. They didn't have necessarily a, a morality, but they did have a concept of offending the gods. And you did not want to do that because it would go bad for you. Not for any kind of moral purposes, but like it would be bad if you offended the gods. Um, this is the way the entire world operated. This is the way everybody saw the divine. This is the, this is the narrative that every people, every group, they had different names, but this is the narrative that all of them operated under when it came to this idea of the divine. These gods were needy. Humans were created. Every creation narrative, humans were created to meet their needs, and if you didn't, life would be miserable. Okay? So think with this backdrop. All of a sudden, you have a God that comes in that doesn't need anything. Certainly doesn't need you. This is not a God that you came up with. This is not a God that somebody was just like, here's an idea. This was... Uh, this is a God that wasn't in conflict with all of these other gods. In fact, his reintroduction to his people in the plagues in Egypt was to take each of the gods. Every plague is corresponding with an Egyptian god. And he took each one of the gods and mocked them and demonstrated that he was more powerful than every one of the Egyptian gods when he delivered his people. You did nothing to earn this God's favor... You did nothing to merit him showing up or to get him to choose you. There's no amount of sacrifices that you can make to appease him because he needs nothing. And all of a sudden, this God wants to make a covenant with you and your people. A covenant is not legislation. A covenant is relationship. Partners who make a binding agreement with one another. Now, we may look at this and we're like, well, yeah, we know all this. We know all this. It, it, has, it has become something that may seem like duh to us, but remember our background here. God doesn't give these commands because he needs, but because we need. They're for our good. Not only that, but they give us a revelation of who he is and what he expects. And that was unheard of. 
God says, I will be in relationship with you, and you're going to start to look like me and bear my image and be holy. And this is what that looks like. This is called revelation. No other God in any other ancient cosmology has revelation. It's up to us to try to figure it out. So God gives these rules and these statutes. Are you ready? Because he loves his people. He makes himself known. He reveals himself. And he reveals the expectations of the relationship. And nobody's going to respond to this with like, ugh, seriously? Seriously? Look at David. Look throughout the Psalms. What does David say? It seems weird to us. David says, I delight in the law of the Lord and meditate on it. How many of you delight in the speed limit? Full confession, I do not in any way, shape, or form. And sometimes I've had to bring my sacrifices before the table because of my lack of delighting in the speed limit. Kids, obey the speed limit. All right. Um, the goal, and, and then the goal in a relationship, when we look at this, the goal in a covenant, the goal in a relationship is not simply to follow the rules. That's never the goal of a relationship. Um, several years ago, my wife and I got into a passionate discussion. Um, we've had uh, others, uh, but several years ago we got into one. And it was about an everyday thing, which most of our passionate discussions are about everyday things. And um, it was about where we were going to go out to eat. And she asked me, where do you want to go? And my response, tell me if you've heard this one before, actually, probably, ladies, you could probably fill in what my response was, right? My noble deference. I don't care. Where do you want to go? Now, here's the problem. Um, whereas I look at my indifference as, as a pretty, pretty noble laying down my life type of thing, um, eventually when you say, I don't care enough, you know what people tend to hear? I don't care. And so my wife lovingly responded, well, I want you to care. I want you to care. And I want you to put thought into an evening. And I want you to arrange child care. And I want you to like, decide where we're going to go. And, and I want you to take me to a place that you know that I want to go to. And there was my end, right? Well, how am I supposed to know? How am I supposed to know where you want to go? And I thought, I've got her. Because I have told you. I've told you. In fact, I have typed it out for you. I've put a list of my favorite restaurants. You know the things that I like, or, or you should. Uh, let me tell you, men and women, in friendships, in relationships, in marriage, don't ever presume. You may think, well, it's not romantic. He should know where I want to go. Okay, maybe, but also tell him. And she did, and I didn't pay attention. But I have learned I have learned since that conversation, I have learned that my wife will eat sushi any time of day, any location, doesn't matter. She loves sushi. Hold the avocado. She loves good Mexican food, 
But nothing will compare to the barbacoa tacos at Rosalita's. I like sticky tables, and my wife has indulged me far more than I deserve on sticky tables. Um, but if I can find a good charcuterie, or a beautiful view, or live music, she's all in. And in fact, on Friday, I was even able to speak her love language uh, by getting takeout, yellow chicken curry with brown rice, level one heat from Pearl Cafe. And we had a gift card, so it spoke both of our love languages. <laughs> there are so many things about God that he's revealed here, making himself known, that we just take for granted everyday thing. Well, of course God makes himself known. Of course God is love. It's become old hat for us. Some of us still operate in this form of um, that we need to do things because God needs me to do things. Right? Some of us still operate in that guilt and obligation. I need to do this. God needs me to do this. Um, but there are others who maybe think, well, of course God loves us. He loves us so much we can do whatever we want. In fact, some of us have kind of turned it into God exists to meet our needs. So what we have here in Deuteronomy is a God that is not created by man. He's not something anyone came up with. He has made himself known. He meets face-to-face -face with Moses and the people of Israel. And the, the whole thing about the people of Israel, that, so the generation of men that were there have actually died off. None of them are going to get to enter the promised land. But probably the children who were nearby are now 40, and they will remember this. The point that Moses is making here is not to our fathers, but, but to us. The point that Moses is making here is this is not long, long, long ago in a galaxy far, far away. This was, you remember this that God met with us, that God made himself known. This has happened in your lifetime. He's made a covenant with us. And this covenant is told twice in very common form of an ancient treaty between nations and kings. This God who doesn't need anything desires to enter into a covenant with this ancient people. They weren't powerful. They weren't glorious. They weren't economically stable. They didn't even have land. And this God makes himself known. And if you think just how radical that must have been, such a stark contrast to everything they would have known. So here's what I'm going to do to, to, to finish this out. Over the course of Deuteronomy, we're going to, I'm not going to go through all ten commandments right now. Over the course of Deuteronomy, we will, we will see how these will play out, uh, how the basic commands will play out and how we treat God and neighbor. Um, but I want to take two of the first three and break them down with this background and what we might be missing here and the depth of richness that's actually, that might be there calling us into relationship, okay? Um, and then we'll look at what the current application is from those. And this is, again, this is leaning uh, heavily on a, on a lecture from John Walton. The first command have no other gods before me. What do we typically think of when we think of that? Usually we think priority, right? Be careful of your idols in your life. Uh, don't worship other things more than God. Okay? I'm, I'm not going to tell you that that's bad. <laughs> but I don't know that that's what is taking place here in this command. And let, let me, let me um, 
see something. Uh, like, I have preached that. Don't have false idols. Don't love something more than God as a priority list. However, um, ponder this. In the context of the ancient world, there was no such thing as individualism. Everything happened in, in a council or a community. Um, all religions had multiple, multiple, multiple gods, and this is going to be the hardest thing for Israel to get over. They operated in councils. Uh, different gods had different areas of, of specialty. And so you may have to bring in multiple gods on multiple things. So what if before was not meant in a priority type of way, but like in a presence type of way? E-N-C-E, presence. Do not bring other gods into my counsel. I don't share authority. I don't share power. It is me. There are no other gods in my counsel. Now, God can delegate. God sometimes delegates to prophets and angels and things like that, but he does not share power. I am not a god like those other nations' gods. And in fact, in my kingdom, they are useless. Now, he's not saying they don't exist here. Isaiah said that in the passage we read earlier. But in another way, he is saying they don't exist. Right? Don't bring them into my counsel. They have no power. They have no effect. Well, if you have no power and you have no effect and you have no authority, guess what? You ain't a god. In our day, we often don't, um, we often don't seek delegation to other divine, other divine authorities, right? We don't say, well, here's this guy, but I need to pray to the God of this. And I don't bring other, we don't tend to bring other gods into that council. Uh, we don't delegate a th divine authority to other lesser gods. In our day, we're more inclined to take that authority for ourselves, and believe that God and I really kind of make up a pretty good team of ruling over the universe. Right? A name you're going to hear a lot, David Foster Wallace, uh, in his uh, graduation speech to Kenyon University several years ago. This is what he says, A huge percentage of the stuff that I tend to be automatically certain of is, it turns out, totally wrong and deluded. Here's an example of the utter wrongness of something I tend to be automatically sure of. Everything in my own immediate experience supports my deep belief that I am the absolute center of the universe. The realest, most vivid, and important person in existence. What was that Pentecostal word you used? Ouchaluya? Yeah. Ouch, hallelujah. This, this is a complete violation of the first commandment. God doesn't want us to believe that somehow we are the most important, like that all of time in history has existed to give us me. And all of the way I experience all of life backs that up. He is the only one with authority. And he invites us to submit to that. 
Let's also talk about commandment number three. Do not take the name of the Lord in vain. Several things about this one. What do we usually think, right, don't use, uh, don't use God's name as a curse word or an explanation, uh, exclamation, or like right after you stub your toe, right? Um, that's, that's usually, we, there's some other ways that we may uh, completely do that, um, but, but that's the, that, the essence there. And you might wonder, well, it's just a name, right? So how, is that a big deal? I'm going to confess, like, curse words are a big thing. I don't know who, like, what council sits down and decides what are going to be curse words and what are just, like, like, why can we say ouchalooya? Nobody's like, well, that's, how dare you say that? But you say another word and add alluya to the end of it, and you, you're going to be in trouble, right? That's a, that's a thing for another time. We can, we can talk about that. But I'm like, who decides? Who decides? I'm, I'm usually, like, the motive, right? The motive with which you use words and what you're doing. But we may be like, it's just a name. It's just a collection of letters. Why is that such a big deal? And why would that be, um, why would that be bad? And if that's your view, uh, then I would love for you, uh, if you would, write down on a piece of paper for me uh, your full name, um, your uh, credit card number, and um, the last four digits of your social security number. They're just numbers, right? It's just a random collection of numbers. You don't have any power. So you can just give them on over. Cool? Okay. So what's in a name? A name has a sense of power to it. And then once we understand that names and words can have certain measure of authority, then we need to understand this, that in the ancient world, magic was very much a religion. Magic was a way to, um, the, the reason magic was used, it was a way to summon a god or gods through practices or rituals to call upon their names for, more often than not, self-serving motives. Magic was a way to shortcut things to get stuff. Power, wealth, victory. Magic was used for self-glory. And then, of course, vain, vanity, the traditional use is one of selfishness and self-righteous. And what God is saying, do not bring my name for your glory. Current application of that. This is a weight that I feel often. For me to stand up here and to use the name of the Lord to proclaim certain truths, certain views, certain positions. I better be pretty certain of God's intent on those things. If I use a personal preference and say, thus saith the Lord, that's a no-no. When we pull God onto our side, into our personal views, we presume his favor, our personal game, our political leanings, when we use God's name for our preferences, this is a betrayal of commandment number three. God says, don't seek me with magic. Don't think you can bring incantations and use my name to get stuff. That's not what I'm about. So, We'll land the plane here. Back up, take a deep breath. 
I don't want any of this to, now some of you may be sitting here and be like, okay, that's neat. Um, or some of you may be like, well, I need to rethink everything I've known. No, hopefully not either one of those. <laughs> Definitely, hopefully not the second one. And the first one, if you're like, eh, well, I get it. Um, it, it blew me away. Um, this shouldn't undo what we've learned about God. It should add a depth of our understanding. God doesn't just show up and give us a list of rules not to break. That's not, that's not the, the, uh, the meaning of the Ten Commandments. He is making known to this people in time and history that he alone is God. And again, we take that for granted. Yeah, of course he is. But he doesn't have needs. That was actually a huge relief. That means he's not a God to try to manipulate He's not a God where you're like, if I do this, God, will you get me out of this? It's not a God that you have to feed regularly to get him to do your bidding or at least make life a little bit less miserable. This is also a God that doesn't leave it to guesswork. Worship me. How? Figure it out. He doesn't leave it to guesswork. He reveals I alone am God. This is how I made you. This is how I made the world to be. This is an invitation. This is, this, is, uh, this is not unfair. This is actually profoundly helpful. It's not just following the rules. It's actually an instruction manual on how to do this relationship. Now, ultimately, God's people would turn it into being about rules. And God's people would violate those rules. And knowing what to do and what not to do did not ever change the hearts of God's people toward the end goal, which was, we'll look at this next week, to love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. The hope of Jesus, then, is not simply that Jesus came and followed all the rules. The hope of Jesus, let this blow your mind, is that he actually walked this earth and loved the Father with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength at all times. That's remarkable. This sets us free. He fulfilled the relationship that we don't deserve. He fulfilled that perfectly. And so this sets us free to love and learn to trust God and walk in obedience, not to earn or merit his favor, not to meet his needs, but because we believe and trust that he is our hope and salvation. So with all of that in tow, some of the knowledge of these ancient gods and cosmologies and all of that backdrop, here's what I want you to practice this week. You can do it in your, in your gospel communities. Uh, you can do it with, um, with a friend. You can do it in personal um, uh, just, you know, with a journal or whatever, but I want you to read through these commands not with an eye toward legislation. Don't look at these like they're speed limits or like they're the school rules that all, all the kids had to sit through a few days, you know, a couple weeks ago. Day one, first punishment, second punishment. My kid was telling me all the ways you can get kicked out of school. I'm like, that's good. And the same punishment for having baggy pants and for bringing a gun to school. Or something, it was something like that. Like the, I was like, that's weird. All right. 
Um, read through these commands, not as this list of legislative rules, but see if you can read through it by saying, okay, this is God actually making himself known. This is an invitation for us to actually know him. This is like my spouse or a friend or somebody telling me, I love you and these are the things that, that this is what makes me happy. Read through this as, as a revelation that God is actually making himself known. He's not leaving it up to you to guess. And then I want, to, I want you to ask yourself two, two questions as you read. What does God make known about himself? You can also, what does God make known about himself and the way he designed the world and, and all of that um, through this command? And then the second question to ask is how do I respond to this? How do I learn and obey these things? And if you want to get really daring, ask somebody else, to, how, how do I respond to this? Invite somebody else to speak into that. Do you see me responding well to this? Do you see me not responding to this? Now, don't presume to offer your opinion if somebody doesn't ask, ask you, because that's a big no-no in our culture. That's the, 11th, that's the first commandment in our culture. Thou shalt not give me your opinion unless I ask for it. Um, but ask somebody. Give them permission. Can you speak into these into my life? My responses or lack thereof. This is a God, when we see it against this backdrop, how vastly different he is, things that we take for granted now, but how vastly different he is from the way everybody saw the world. This is a good and majestic and holy God who actually makes himself known and then invites us to respond. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus, that even going a step further, that you incarnated the fullness of, of God in a package that we could understand as a human. So we got to see what we're called to be on display. God, thank you that this is not, this is not about simply us being moral people that if we meet enough of these demands, then, then we will appease you. Nor is this about um, just God loves everybody and we get to do whatever we want. You've called us to be your people. That's a high calling. But it's also not left on us to achieve. And so may we read these commands with grace and mercy, but also with a compelling that we are invited and called to respond to being a holy people because of our good and holy God that we didn't merit, we didn't earn, we didn't deserve, yet you made yourself known. May we walk in humble confidence. In Jesus' name, amen. building our identity in Christ for the sake of the world. That's the mission of Refuge Church. For more information, visit us online at seekrefuge.net.